In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, Reserve with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S., 2022. Now here we go. The guests who proactively reach out, whether it's through a review aggregate like Yelp, Google, TripAdvisor, Facebook, whether they've had a great experience or a subpar experience, they are just literally dangling bait for us to create a hospitality moment for them and engage with them good or bad, and really go above and beyond to not only retain them, but get them to tell our story for us through word of mouth through a great hospitality experience. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Matt Smith has been the marketing mastermind for some of the most innovative brands over the last decade. His work with The Simmer Group, Madeira, and One Table Restaurant Brands has taken him from executive to thought leader within our industry. In our conversation today, we discuss his latest move to the experiential dining group, Milkshake Concepts. And he shares his plan to help the company scale up by creating massive awareness. After college, I moved to New York City and I joined this creative agency that kind of carved out a specialty in the restaurant and hospitality space. We did everything from branding to kind of functioning as a full service external marketing team to creating restaurant concepts from the ground up. And I had started with this agency as an intern, eventually worked my way to become partner. And I was out in Los Angeles visiting with a client. And the client I was visiting with at the time said, look, if you're going to help me build a fast casual in Los Angeles, you better check out this brand, Tokaya Organica. They have two locations, one of which is in West Hollywood. We're going to go there. We're going to eat. You're going to check it out. So I walked into Tokaya in West Hollywood. I was blown away instantly by just how experiential it was for a fast casual. I was used to a lot of kind of New York City fast casuals that you know have hard materials and don't really want you to stay and serve you your food and to go where. And this place kind of did the opposite. The food came out fast. It was affordable. It was healthy. But I got all the benefits of essentially eating at a full service restaurant. And so I picked up the phone. I called my intern at the time who had access to my email. And I said, I want you to send an email to the CEO of Tokaya Organica. I want to work with them. So he sent them an email and they happened to be in the middle of a branding project that they were taking bids on. And my agency came in very late in the process, but was very adamant about getting the opportunity to pitch them in person. So flew back out on my own dime to LA to pitch them, ended up winning the business. And about two years later, the CEO of Tokaya sent me an email at my work email and got a bounce back because I had exited my partnership and was kind of looking for my next role. And when he got the bounce back, he picked up the phone and called me. And he said that they were looking for a chief marketing officer. The timing was perfect. It was about January in New York City. I was waiting for the subway in like four layers. And the idea of Los Angeles anything 
sounded pretty damn good. So I had dinner with my wife that night. I said, there's about a 1% chance we're moving to LA. She started crying. <laughs> and I really did think there was only about a 1% chance. I obviously didn't have experience as a chief marketing officer. It was kind of going from agency world to in-house. But after several interviews with all the stakeholders, they decided to kind of take a chance on me. And off I went. So that's kind of how I got my first executive level position in the restaurant industry. And when you assume that role, I would assume that they don't give the role to someone that can fulfill their vision. I would assume that they give the role to someone who has a vision that aligns with theirs. They can take it in a better trajectory. Someone that has more value to offer than doing what they're told. Yes. Yeah, for sure. They weren't looking for just kind of yes men and women and validation per se. I mean, validation was a big part of what I did, especially in the early days, because there's a reason I was so attracted to the brand. But I think they were really excited about the insight I could give on kind of the greater multi-unit hospitality landscape exposure I had had to the pitfalls of scaling concepts across the U.S. and where to put our chips, where not to put our chips. And I came in at a really interesting time in the trajectory of the company. So despite the fact that it was my first executive level position, they gave me a lot of freedom. They gave me a lot of say. They were very open to my ideas. It allowed me to gain a lot of experience through trial by fire. I didn't get this CMO training manual when I came in. I did all my homework. I read all the books I could read and tried to fake it till I made it to an extent and was able to just through hard work and being a sponge, learn a lot, but also contribute very early on. What did you do right? So in the early days of that relationship, when we look at, let's say, your first six months to a year there, what are the things that you did, which at the time I'm sure were theories that then you executed into practical application that you've carried with you into these other roles? Yeah, I would say probably the biggest thing that I did was become a massive brand advocate and really seek to protect the brand. And one of the pitfalls I had seen at that point is you have these really kind of hyper-regional brands with cult followings and people get attached to these brands and then outside money gets involved, restaurant level EBITDA gets involved, trimming the middle of the P&L gets involved and all these little things start to get looked at as far as cutting costs and cutting corners as a way to generate more money. And some of those things, when you look at them on a piece of paper are insignificant, but others very subtly in many ways contribute to the brand experience and are a big reason that people are attracted to these brands. So one of the first things I did was as arbitrary or insignificant as it might sound, I redesigned our to-go bags and I made them really, really special. And it's kind of a running joke that I have with the now president of Tokai, who was a COO at the time. They always called them my to-go bags because they were pretty expensive and still are, but they're as nice, if not nicer than a Tiffany bag. And I recognized early on that people eat at Tokaya for the feeling that they get, not just how the food tastes and that the value, despite the food being great and it being great value offering, the value is really the brand, how it makes people feel. And, you know, the to-go bags were kind of a walking embodiment of that and also a free advertisement. The people who came and ate at our restaurants were exactly who we wanted to come and eat at our restaurants. And they were representative of the lifestyle that we tried to convey. And if other people saw that these people ate at our restaurants, well, these people were pretty aspirational and they'd want to follow suit. So really made sure I wrapped my arms around the brand, tried to represent our guest and advocate for them in the midst of us trying to grow really quickly and obviously make more money like any other business would. 
And how do you reconcile that with the money that's spent? Most of the folks that listen to the show are independents, right? And so they're like, to go bags, Matt, like that's where you decided to invest your time and your effort and your money. And then, you know, you would think, you know, a global pandemic hits, like the first thing the CEO says is fuck those to go bags. How significant is it? Like it's, I think what everyone tries to wrap their arms around, is like, what is marketing, right? How do you create a brand? And so it's interesting that that's where you chose to start. Was that part of a bigger strategy? To just reference a global pandemic, you know, they could have said F those to go bags, or they could have said, thank God we upgraded those to go bags because we're in California and that's the only way our food is being served. That's the only brand touch point that we have. We don't have the nice ceramic bowls and the smiling runner and the great music and the comfortable furniture. All we have is our to-go packaging and supply chains all backed up. So even if we wanted to upgrade it, it's going to be months and way more expensive than it was in the contract we signed in 2019. So maybe I saw the pandemic coming. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That's no, marketing. No, I, I did not. I did not. It was just one example of how we could bring the brand to life outside the four walls of the restaurant. You know, another arbitrary small example is trying to create a Spotify presence for the brand, which is kind of a random marketing channel. But I'm definitely more from the school of kind of this branding kind of soft sell approach as opposed to super promo heavy or discounting. And music is one of the first things people notice at Tokaya. It's louder than most restaurants, let alone a fast casual all playlists are hand curated at the time by our music director, who was also our marketing director and DJed still regularly at the time at Toca Madeira, our experiential fine dining restaurant. And because music was such a central component and music is such a central component in people's lives when they're not eating at restaurants, whether they're driving, working out, et cetera, if we could kind of be known as a curator of great music, period, and people wanted to listen to our playlists and follow our channel. It's just another kind of soft sell branded touch point. So I just wanted to continue to develop the brand. That was what was most important to me. There was clearly a lot that was working. I wasn't brought in to reinvent the wheel. You know, I wanted to focus on really solidifying who we were, identifying our positioning. So it wasn't just kind of an idea, a feeling that everyone in the executive suite kind of nodded at each other, but we could articulate it and figure out how it applied to different channels and other applications. So it was a huge, huge focus. When you started modeling out Tukaya, was there a model that you had in mind that you had pulled from someone else? Were there elements of other brands that you looked to emulate? From a CMO perspective, were there other executives out there that you were like, I want to run this like that guy? Not super specific as far as CMO-wise. Well, first, I guess brand-wise, I've always looked up to Sweetgreen. Right. Sweetgreen kind of became the darling of our subcategory right as I was getting into this business. I had one right near my office in New York City. And I just thought the way that they were able to own kind of farm to table and seasonality, despite it being said so many times, so many different ways for years, the way they were able to concisely articulate that to their guests and kind of be the poster child for that was very admirable. And a lot of the activations and brand stuff that they did were so out of the box. For a while, they had that music festival, Sweet Life, and their photography style 
was not just, they weren't just kind of falling in line and doing these food porn shots that everyone was doing to kind of drive engagement on Instagram. They just kind of blazed their own trail. And I admired that at the same time, I was very competitive with them. I don't know if I should be saying this, but one of the first things I did when I got to Tokai as well is I did all new t-shirts for our cooks and chefs. And on the back, it said, cooks that can actually cook instead of just scoop, how sweet it is. And the idea was that we had a lot of open kitchens and I wanted our guests to see it. And if they noticed it and got the reference, great. If they didn't, no big deal. But it was also intended to kind of boost back of house culture and morale. Like you guys are chefs. You're cooking real food from scratch here. You're not just kind of following these step-by-steps and creating an assembly line. Nothing against that. It's a great model and I would kill to be sweet green. But I, while looking up to them and admiring them, you know, I also wanted to be competitive with them, especially in our home market that they were kind of trying to enter into. As far as CMOs, not really. I think there's a lot of copycatting in our industry. The one person that I kind of kept an eye on, he doesn't even know I exist, and he's no longer in our industry. His name's Fernando Machado. He was the CMO of Burger King for a while. And I just really admired his risk taking his willingness to do very controversial campaigns that a lot of people scoffed at and said were horrible ideas, yet shared because they thought they were horrible ideas. And other people thought they were brilliant, me being one of them. And they got people talking. One that I remember distinctly is to communicate the freshness of the Whopper. He aged it next to, I think, a Big Mac and did a time lapse and the Big Mac got covered in mold you're showing your hero product covered in mold. It's pretty disgusting, but he's, he, they are trying to make a point that this is real food and real food is supposed to go bad after a certain period of time. I just love that. Would I have the courage to do a campaign like that? Take the Tokaya Fajita Del Rey bowl and uh, show that it's real food by watching it age over 10 days? Probably not, but that's why I admire him. And that's why he's had a lot of success. So that he's probably the only person that I, looked up to, but there are other brands in my, in our geography at the time that I thought did really good stuff. One brand is a a brand called Sweetfin Poke. The marketing is actually more or less run by the co-founder and president, a friend of mine named Seth Cohen. And uh, what they're able to do marketing, yeah, what they're able to do marketing wise, considering how lean their team was and still is to some extent, is pretty incredible. You would look at what they do from a culinary innovation, LTO, just kind of ongoing marketing communication and think they got a pretty extensive team. So always kept an eye on them and love talking shop with Seth. What is the marketing life cycle of a restaurant? Like what is the goal of marketing at the beginning? How does that change and evolve over time? Because you've also entered a bunch of different restaurant concepts in a bunch of different life cycles. You've also worked for big groups that have multiple brands and I'm sure it's not one size fits all. The biggest thing is driving trial, right? I won't associate myself. I won't work for a company where I don't believe that the product is good. I'm a product marketer. If there is a restaurant that I work for or represent and it's struggling, in most cases, I don't really support just dumping a bunch of money into an ad campaign. There's a reason that people are not going to that restaurant. It's probably a product problem. When I say product, it could be food execution. It could be service. It could be speed and ticket times. It could be location. It could be competition. It could be anything. So I always look at the product first if we're not seeing the traffic that we want, 
right? Because I do my diligence on the front end before joining a company and feel pretty confident in my ability to say, okay, this could succeed. So if it's not succeeding to its full potential, what is missing right now? But my number one job is to drive trial, right? And then once I drive trial and people come to the restaurants, for the most part, it's out of my hands, right? There's nothing I could do once someone comes in if they order a steak medium rare and it comes well done, or their server wasn't joyous and smiling and paying close attention to their needs, or the restaurant was dirty, or there were no paper towels in the restroom, or all these crazy little details that make our industry so insanely difficult to operate and manage. Where we do play a role in frequency and return visits is really kind of the guest life cycle. So it's so competitive these days, and there are so many concepts where you can order to go, delivery, dine-in, et cetera, that in addition to just kind of relying on great execution and a great operation to drive frequency, it's important for us to really stay engaged with our guests. And there's a number of ways that we do that and we can do that. The guests who proactively reach out, whether it's through a review aggregate like Yelp, Google, TripAdvisor, Facebook, whether they've had a great experience or a subpar experience, they are just literally dangling bait for us to create a hospitality moment for them and engage with them, good or bad, and really go above and beyond to not only retain them, but get them to tell our story for us through word of mouth, through a great hospitality experience. And then there's all kinds of, depending on the restaurant format, digital guest journey opportunities, looking at a full service restaurant and reservation platforms and having profiles on guests and the ability to kind of create these automated or trigger campaigns that checks in with a guest 24 hours after their visit and, you know, thanks them for coming back on their second visit and recognizes them as a VIP on their fourth visit and allows the hostess to reference notes in their diner profile when they walk in your world of fine dining. How far does that go to walk in and someone go, hey, Mr. Smith, good to see you again. You want your typical Sprite with cranberry juice and so on and so forth. So um, that's why people dine out. All of these great moments and memories throughout their life, birthdays, celebrations, holidays, family gatherings are spent at restaurants and We have the ability to kind of create those hospitality moments in our restaurants with the use of technology. We have the ability to create those hospitality moments even when they're not in their restaurants or in our restaurants rather. So to answer your question in short, trial is our number one focus. We want to drive traffic. I'm not one of these fluffy marketers. I stay very close to the financials. We want to drive traffic. We want to drive sales and we want that to trickle down to EBITDA. And then we kind of share the burden of frequency with operations. You listen to this show because you're looking for tools to improve your life and your business. And this tool is going to be a game changer for you and your team. Snibs are the world's most comfortable non-slip work shoe for folks like us who work on our feet eight plus hours a day. And they can stand up to the elements of a restaurant from water to flour. Trusted by over 100,000 hospitality workers, these shoes have over 1,000 five-star reviews. Best yet, Snibs is the brainchild of an award-winning chef and a world-class orthopedic surgeon named Dr. Snib. Yep, that's where the name comes from, creating the world's most comfortable work shoe that looks great too. Head to snibs.co to experience the difference from first wear and use the promo code FULLCOMP to get 10% off your first pair. That's S-N-I-B-B-S dot C-O. And make sure you use the code FULLCOMP to get 10% off your first pair.
you tell the story and then I always think about the Yokiero Taco Bell, the Taco Bell dog and how did you hear the story about the agency and how the agency that created what was arguably one of the most prolific marketing campaigns ever was fired because even though it got a ton of attention, it didn't drive traffic to the restaurants. People fell in love with the dog and not the food. It's so interesting that that's your perspective because marketing, PR, these are usually the first things that are cut when times get tough. When you tie it all back to traffic, especially like new customer acquisition, it seems like an amazing opportunity. Are there some tactics and tools that work universally that you've seen throughout all of the different brands you've worked with? The reason why I consider myself or call myself a product marketer is because there's nothing I could do marketing-wise or campaign-wise or anything like that that's going to get someone to like a product that they otherwise really would not like, like at its core, right? Sure. And so I've been lucky in my experience with my previous role to be very involved in kind of menu development and culinary and the actual product. Whereas a lot of organizations, you're the marketing guy, go make the ads, go do the ad campaigns, go do the email marketing, et cetera. But I have to believe in and be confident in based on my knowledge of our guests, the competition, et cetera, that we're offering a differentiated product, right? So because of my involvement in the core product, I'm able to kind of make that gamble and say, I want to ride the traffic train with everyone else. I want to take on that responsibility. But it really comes down to if you execute at a high level, if you have a differentiated product, if you have decent real estate, you're bound to succeed. I mean, I just can't think of a lot of examples of brands that had really great food, really great service, and decent real estate that haven't been successful for at least a period of time. What inspired the move to Milkshake Concepts? You're a man with options. Why would you choose that company? So I decided to move my family to Dallas about a year and a half ago. I had moved with my wife out to LA for my previous role and loved it. But we had a daughter in LA, all my family's in the Northeast, and my mother-in-law retired down to Texas. So we had an opportunity to get a little bit closer to family get a little bit more bang for our buck as far as space and things like that. And, you know, funny enough, the original plan was for me to stay in my role in Los Angeles and fly back to LA every other week for three days a week. And I would have been very happy to do that. But after giving it some thought and some organic opportunities that kind of came my way, I have a 22 month old and, you know, not being away from her every other week for three days a week and kind of putting that burden on my wife, Sounded like a pretty good option. I was attracted to Milkshake Concepts after having met the CEO because of the uniqueness of the portfolio. I kind of look at Milkshake Concepts as like a stock portfolio. There's a lot of diversity, right? We have a couple fast casuals, pizza concepts, one in Deep Ellum in Dallas, one in Fort Worth, all the way up to Vidora, which is kind of our horse. It's kind of our mid-market experiential Mexican which has a ton of national growth potential, all the way up to a restaurant just off Broadway in Nashville and Honky Tonk Central to basically a fine dining steakhouse right next to Komodo and Laneda, very well-known kind of higher-end national restaurant. So the diversity of the portfolio really allowed me to kind of flex my creative juices. And the opportunity I was given at Tokai to have such a big impact on everything from creative to culinary 
really feeling like a partner in the business, was a partner in the business, but really being treated like one and having a seat at the table. I wasn't confident that going to a 100, 150, 200 unit chain, I would have that opportunity. So how I was approached by Imran, who's the CEO here, to really kind of be shoulder to shoulder with the founders and help them grow this thing was really attractive to me because I've fallen in love with the restaurant business as much as I've fallen in love with marketing. I love the people. I love all of it. I love the teams. I love the grind. I love the hustle. It's just such a unique space. It's an unbelievable entry into careers for so many different types of people from all different walks of life. I've just totally fallen in love with it. So the ability to more or less be on the ground floor and and help take these guys from where they're at now, which is about 12 locations across several different concepts to where we want to go, was just really exciting. And so you take the role, you go to work, you sit down at your desk. It's the first thing you do. Like assuming a new role is a CMO, how do you triage what needs to be improved first? I mean, that's a great question. It's overwhelming, to be honest, especially because, well, especially because there's so many different brands, right? So I had had opportunities to work for groups like this in the past that have a bunch of different brands. And I had always shied away from it because of the things I highlighted about Tokaya, which is I like to go deep. Like I like to go really deep with the brands. And when you have a bunch of different brands, you kind of trade that depth for breadth, right? You're like just playing whack-a-mole, trying to stay afloat. Oh, this is something we got to work on. On to the next and this and that. And so it was a bit overwhelming at first because, first of all, I had to learn about all these brands. And, you know, some have two locations, some have three, some have one. And so then it came down to just prioritizing, almost like how we used to quartile our restaurants based on performance. I had to look at the brands and the locations and the concepts that were worthy of the most investment as far as time and resources. And that's not to say the ones that were at the bottom of the list get none of my attention and none of our resources, but it wouldn't have been very strategic to just split my time evenly, right? As I mentioned, Vidora, two locations, mid-market Mexican. You could have your wealthy businessman having a meeting there and then your middle America couple going there for a salsa night, a ton of upside. It could work in every city and it can just kind of have all kinds of different customers and different markets. So that's where I really want to spend most of my time because that has the most growth potential. But then there's a lot of new restaurant openings and us trying to enter a new market, Nashville. So it really just came down to prioritizing my time, figuring out, I have a saying, quit things in the order, they're killing you. So I basically applied that to, and that's not my saying, but that's a saying I've heard, but I basically applied that to how I tackled this thing is like, what are the most pressing issues right now? Now, Obviously you have a new restaurant opening. There's a date associated with that. There's things that need to happen to make sure that when we open those doors, there are butts in seats. That's probably going to be a top priority, not the to-go bags for the concepts that have a couple locations and are doing just fine. So That's how I went about it. That's how I've gone about it. And it just continues to kind of smooth out as I acclimate myself a little bit more. It's been about almost three months. It's hard to delineate between what is important and what is urgent in our industry because there's a ton of overlap, but then at times it seems to deviate. Something that you said that really resonates with me is I think the biggest inflection point when we went from like treading water to really thriving 
was when we spent more time focused on what's working and less time trying to fix what wasn't. Because what we found was if we stopped going against momentum and started going with the momentum, it wasn't about how to get busier on a Tuesday. It was like, can we pull another five grand out of Fridays and Saturdays? And it was transformational for me. And I hear a lot of that in what you're saying. I don't know if your listeners can, I don't think they can see me, but I'm basically doing the like, you know, bow down, preach thing. Um, <laughs> I learned a very, very good lesson from one of my mentors, uh, Rudy Sugetti, who's the president of Tokaya. And it happened when we were quartiling restaurants. And it's the old checkers move. Look at the underperformers. How do we lift them? Well, the chess move is exactly what you said. Why are these underperformers or why are these things not working? Probably because they were never going to work. Probably because people don't go on dates on Tuesday nights. Probably because people are trying to recover from a weekend out and they don't want to drink a bunch of alcohol on a Monday night. So instead of trying to change people's deeply entrenched behavior, to use your example, how do you lift Friday by 3 to 5% the day where people want to come and steal from your competition? And even more so, how do you take your base that's coming on a Friday and get a higher percentage of them to have more of an attachment to appetizers and desserts and maybe get an extra cocktail? That's really where it's at. That is the way to play it. And I'm not saying to just kind of cut bait on the things that aren't working or to cut bait on the locations that are struggling. Some of the best locations I've ever been a part of, there were talks about some pretty significant moves, i.e. closing them in the first year, only to see that after 18 months and they had fully ramped, they became the greatest locations we had in that market. So another saying I like is time takes time, but focus on, to your point, what's working and how can you replicate that in different ways? Let's talk about intention and accountability. So I think many restaurants send out a monthly newsletter to send out a monthly newsletter. There's no ambition behind it. There's no goal. We're going to send out this newsletter. We're going to get a 40% open rate and we're going to convert 15% of the list to paying customers over the next seven days. I don't think many restaurants think in that way, but I think that a way that we could all start thinking in a more linear way and attaching our behaviors to goals as it relates to marketing is to know what numbers to track. What KPIs do you look at relative to your efforts? So it depends. It's a tough question to answer because, again, our current portfolio is pretty diverse, spanning fine dining, QSR, et cetera. Right now, one example I would give is, and it's funny, I was on another podcast and I talked about this and it makes me feel like a dinosaur to mention this <laughs> form of marketing, but I'm going to do it anyways. We opened a restaurant recently in Grand Prairie, Texas, and I'm going to guess that you don't know where Grand Prairie is and your listeners don't. It's about 30 minutes away from Dallas. It's being redeveloped. It's definitely a bit of an older world type town. I'm not talking about like the Wild West or anything like that, but this is not the nomad district of lower Manhattan. And so when we opened the restaurant, we deployed a direct mail campaign. And this is why I mentioned it's going to make me sound like a dinosaur. Direct mail is a lot of people think is like a thing of the past, but the direct mail campaigns I've done, and I've even done them in Scottsdale, Arizona with Toka Madera and gotten incredible results. And that restaurant continues to do exceptionally well with everyone trying to get their audience's attention 
on social media, people forgot that there is an opportunity to get a physical thing in front of people's faces in their homes. And so direct mail is something that we did. We studied the demographic. We looked at the zip codes and the pockets in terms of traffic patterns, household income, not necessarily wasting these mailers based on our gut and the information we have wouldn't be likely to come in. And then what we did is we gave them very strategic offers to incentivize them to come and check out a new restaurant, to divert from Chili's and and Whataburger and try this more upscale establishment that's kind of come to their town. And the way that it's designed is it's pretty hard to say no to that first one. And we're willing to do that because we're new. We got to pay to play. And then the second one, it's also pretty hard to say no to. And then the third one, it's a little less incentivizing. And so we're kind of weaning them off this incentivization under the pretense that we're confident in our team's ability that when they come in, even if it's just one time, we're going to blow them away with food, service, experience, and then they're going to come back. The non-dinosaur application of these direct mail campaigns is these mailers have specific barcodes that are different for each address. And our operators are able to collect those and we're able to analyze the results of this campaign post-visit. We can obviously see how many times the promo buttons were hit in the POS and really measure our return on investment. But more importantly, we get to really see geographically where our guests are coming from. And should we want to do additional media buys, whether it's digital or out of home or whatever it is, we have a good sense of where these people are coming from and we can retarget them. When we want to sell gift cards during the holiday season, we can do a much less expensive campaign and only send the mailer to those people that had physically come into the restaurant, not the ones who ignored us because it wasn't for them. So that's, I would say, a more unique way that we kind of measure KPIs, you know, and then of course, all the other stuff that other marketers look at in our space. The restaurant industry is filled with unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see our industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? I don't know about rules per se, but as alluded to earlier, I'd like to see people show a little bit more courage in terms of kind of trying to stand out and differentiate and not just emulate their competitors. I would like to see the industry be a little less archaic and less resistant to change and kind of this old world mentality. What I've seen is a lot of people in this industry are a bit jaded by it and have a lot of pride in being restaurant people, so much so that they think the outside world doesn't know the plight of a restaurant person and can't really offer anything because you haven't you haven't ever waited tables or you haven't ever worked a dish pit or anything like that. And I think a little bit more openness to learnings from other industries and recognizing that we're just trying to make people happy. And restaurant people are very insular and think like, you know, you don't know my world. And so I don't need to listen to your ideas and how you think it's supposed to go. Like, and I just think that's not how you grow. Our industry suffers from razor thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager in Yelp ads? They experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. 
To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Matt Smith. For more information on Milkshake Concepts, visit milkshakeconcepts.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.